Disputes Quick Listens, where members of our Disputes team discuss the latest legal updates and trending topics. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our Disputes Quick Listens. I'm Natalia Fajkova. I'm an associate at the Disputes and Investigations team here at Taylor Wessing. And I'm here with... Lawrence Lieberman, a partner in the Disputes and Investigations team. We've got a very interesting topic to discuss today, art fraud. Uh, In particular, we'll talk about the position of the victims of such fraud under English law. Natalia and I will cover the civil side, and then we're going to hand over to Michelle George, who will tell us what the criminal law can do. Yes, so I'd like to start with a very colourful story. Inigo Philbrick was a young art dealer. He's in his 30s now, and he started in his 20s. He was an up-and-coming protégé of the legendary gallerist Jay Joplin. He rose through the ranks at the White Cube Gallery and then opened his own gallery called Modern Collections in Mayfair. This was a secondary market gallery, so a reseller for artists like Christopher Wool and Rudolf Stingel. And Inigo was very knowledgeable, it seems, about the small group of artists. He knew which works would bring the biggest profit on resale. And resale was key, wasn't it? Philbrick wasn't just selling paintings to collectors to hang on a wall. As I understand it, his eventual collapse came through his deals relating to art as an investment. The values of contemporary artists have skyrocketed over the past decades and contemporary art is seen as a good investment asset. And for those of us who are not willing or able to spend £10 million on a painting in the hope that it would appreciate in value, there is the option of buying, say, a 10% share of that painting together with other investors. The painting can be kept in a gallery, it can be kept in storage, and then at some point it is sold and the profit is divided between those who bought the shares. Yes, and that's precisely what Inigo did. This is completely legal and an established practice in the art world. In fact, there is a term for those who speculate in art. They are referred to not as collectors, but as speculators in the trade. However, the problem with Inigo, a respected, knowledgeable and connected person, remember, was that he would sell more than 100% of shares in a painting. Sometimes he'd sell a painting more than once, and he would also obtain loans from a finance company, using the paintings as collateral after having sold those paintings to multiple other people and would falsely represent to be the lender, to the lender that he was the sole owner of those works. And he was betting on the price of his artists continuing to go up, which it did for a while, and Philbrick would sell off some of the works, pay off some of his clients, use some of the money to buy other artworks. This was basically a Ponzi scheme. In fact, Rolling Stone magazine has referred to him as the mini Madoff of the art world. And as with all Ponzi schemes, this inevitably came crashing down and he ended up with a line of people suing him in multiple jurisdictions. Yes, and as that happened, Inigo ran off to a beautiful island in the Pacific, which I'm sure has wonderful climate and many other benefits. But what this island did not have, importantly, is an extradition treaty with the US, which in the end did not help Inigo, as he did end up getting arrested on this island in his flip-flops, apparently, and was extradited to the US, where he pleaded guilty to an $86 million fraud and was sentenced to seven years in prison. And so him going to prison might have satisfied his victims to some extent, but most would, of course, prefer to get their money or their paintings back. And Inigo now doesn't have any money to pay them. So those investors turn to suing for ownership of the paintings, 
And the finance company is asserting that it, asserting that it has a first-ranking security over them in priority to the investors. And this goes on in multiple jurisdictions, notably in New York and in England, so different laws apply. But if we look at English law, what's the position? Well, looking at English law, you first get this false sense of security because we have this overriding rule, nemo dat quod non habet, which is Latin for no one can give what he does not have. So if your house gets burgled, for example, and the thief sells the painting that you stole to a good faith purchaser, so a purchaser who does not know that the painting is stolen goods, if this takes place in England, the purchaser does not get title because the thief did not have title in the first place. In other jurisdictions, this may be different, by the way. So if the thief takes your painting to Italy, a good faith purchaser can acquire title. But in England, you'd think the original owner is safe. And in this case, you could sue both the thief and the purchaser in a civil case for the tort of conversion. And you could get damages or could ask for the painting back. But there might be a difficulty in getting your painting back because the court will look at whether an award of damages would be adequate compensation. With artwork, uh, which is unique, it should be relatively easy to argue that money would not be enough to compensate for the loss of the work. But for those speculators, it would be harder to argue for the delivery of the painting because the whole point of their investment was to sell it and get paid. So getting specific delivery may be harder if you held a painting as an investment as opposed to as part of a traditional art collection. And the same difficulty will arise in obtaining a preliminary injunction if you want to prevent a party from selling the work pending the resolution of a title dispute. That's true. And that's not the only problem facing investors in Philbrick's case. As I mentioned, the Nemodat principle gives a false sense of security. The law has developed to protect property owners in pretty standard situations, such as, you know, theft or burglary. But the English law contains exceptions in the circumstances where a market professional, what's called a mercantile agent, sells goods which are in his hands in the course of his trade. In that case, title can pass to a good faith purchaser, even if the market professional did not have permission to sell. And the problem is that before his much-publicized fall from grace, Philbrick was a reputable art dealer with a gallery in Mayfair and later in Miami. And so if you came to Philbrick's gallery and purchased a painting, not knowing that this had already been sold to other people or that Philbrick did not even have authority to sell it, you would likely still get title to that work. And the original owner would, in theory, then have recourse against Philbrick himself. But since Philbrick is broke, that's not much use. So the multiple disputes between investors in the aftermath of Philbrick's fraud focus on whether title really passed in those transactions. And that's a very complicated analysis. And that isn't helped by the fact that many of these transactions are often done on a handshake, on the back of an envelope, or even with no paperwork, as is quite common in the art world, which works while all is well, but if anything goes wrong, it creates difficulty in trying to figure out what the deal actually was and to untangle these multiple title claims. In the aftermath of fraud, it's better to have even a short but well-drafted agreement. And I think the publicity of cases such as Philbrick's may get collectors to reconsider how they document their purchases. Yes, and cases like Philbrick's challenge some of the other traditions of the art trade as well. For example, the anonymity of buyers and sellers. There was a case of Hickox and Dickinson a couple of years ago now, where the claimant was successful in obtaining a Norwich Pharmacal order, which is basically the court ordering a third party connected to the main dispute to disclose information. 
That case was actually very similar to Philbrick's. That was also a fraud by another art dealer, Timothy Summons, who sold a painting without having authority to do that. And the original owner was successful in obtaining the court order forcing a third-party gallery to disclose the details of the purchaser, so that presumably they could proceed against them. It seems the traditional mystique of the art world does need, does need to be tempered if art collectors and art investors are to enjoy greater legal protection. At the moment, in a case of an intermediary going rogue, both the original owner and the purchaser are likely to be locked in years of litigation over title. And in the meantime, the work will be unsellable. Who wants to buy a lawsuit as well as a painting? So it would seem the best solution would be to avoid this situation in the first place. One way to do this would be to register one's title to the painting in an art database. For example, there's one called the Art Loss Register, whereby if someone comes along and wants to buy the work, they could search that database and you would be notified of that search and the prospective buyer would get notice of your title, if you consent to that, and the fraud could be prevented. Let's then turn to the criminal law to see if that can assist in any way. We will hear from Michelle George, who is a criminal lawyer at Taylor Wessing. Thanks, Asalia. Yeah, so with high-profile art theft, the sort that we read about in the newspapers, which has typically been movie scene, smash-and-grab heists, usually high-profile because of this and the nature of the artwork stolen, and the public gallery it's been stolen from, those types of cases people will be aware who are close to those that there's substantial time and resource that goes into trying to retrieve the artwork just as much as trying to catch the perpetrators. For the criminals themselves, the artwork has become a less lucrative prize. For example, cybercrime, Bitcoin, online fraud has been recently increasing and art thieves might find moving on a headline, famous ticking time bomb, either rarely fetches the value that it's worth in the risk in stealing it comparatively or requires the buyer to turn to a more dangerous criminal than themselves to sell on to. It's not unusual for the police to enter into negotiations for the return of the artwork and even for some to be paid directly to the criminals. And in reality, it's the gallery or the insurers that take the hit. And what is the criminal court's process and power in relation to those who are charged with the theft? Well, with straightforward theft, the criminal courts can require those in possession to return to the person entitled to recover. But that might, as you've mentioned, been another debate in itself. They can also use any money that's been recovered from the offender to compensate any other victims, for example, where the offender has borrowed money using the stolen artwork as security. The problem here, of course, as with the case with Philbrick and Salmons, is that they didn't have any money. So it could be argued those who move in the art world and high society as part of the fraud itself are required to upkeep a lavish lifestyle, just of the sort that they have squandered their money on. So they might not get the cash, but might they be able to recover the artwork itself? Yes, in theory. But as discussed in practice, making restitution in favour of someone entitled to recover, the criminal courts are told they should only make these such orders in the plainest of cases and that the civil courts are better places for the tricky questions of title. So even though the police and criminal courts have legislation in theory to cover both recovery of criminal property and to extract the proceeds of crime from criminals, the likelihood is that these will simply be used for the more obvious seizures. For example, seizing the mobile phone of an arrested suspect and then later by the Crown Court on conviction, the wad of cash seized alongside the illegal drugs, rather than to return, for example, a £4 million artwork, which is likely the subject of complex, multi-jurisdictional fraud and the title to which is being fought over like a good deal on Black Friday. Ultimately, as well, this is all exacerbated from those in practice who are aware of uh, the backlog in criminal cases being brought to trial, available courts and a lack of police resource to deal with such complex investigations in the first place. So, our advice, if this issue arises, you might be best to keep it civil? 
Yes, most definitely. Initially, get your title if you can. Our time is up. This is a very complex topic, which is impossible to cover fully in 10 minutes. We actually wrote an article in the Art, Antiquity and Law Journal called The Fine Art of Fraud, where we discuss all of these issues in much more detail. So if you'd like to learn more, look it up or give us a call. Thanks very much for listening.